Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We have used one of the magic buzzwords that makes you all reach for the download button today. Uh, that is, of course, Hitler. Chris, why have we done that? Um, because we want more people to listen to the show and come for Hitler, stay for some of our other episodes. Basically, yeah. But I mean, it's it's a bona fide good reason that we've used one of yeah. the buzzwords today, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's not just Nazis. So today we have Susan Ronald, who is a biographer and historian whose previous titles include The Ambassador Condé Nast and A Dangerous Woman, Hitler's Art Thief. And she's here today to talk to us about her latest book, Hitler's Aristocrats, The Secret Power Players in Britain and America Who Supported the Nazis, 1923 to 1941. So Susan, hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me, Chris. What was the position of the German aristocracy in the post-First World War Germany and uh, how did they re react to the whole idea of the Red Menace and then the rise of the Nazis? The whole problem was that they were completely disowned uh, by society. Also, the Austrians and Austro-Hungarians as well. Uh, so it wasn't just the Germans. Um, if you were an aristocrat, you were in much worse shape than if you were a common man, so to speak, or a common woman. Um, basically. You lost your land. That all was put into a major uh, foundation of sorts. You lost um, your titles. You lost whatever cash you had because, of course, the German mark was worthless. And it became even increasingly worthless um, within uh, four years of peace. Most of all, you were really, really upset because uh, you had absolutely no voice to the fact that you believed you hadn't lost the war. Particularly in the East, the Germans kept plowing eastward. They were taking uh, on uh, the Ukraine and the Russian uh, Imperial Army there, where it was now the Soviet Army, uh, and, and in all of the Baltic states. But if you look at a map of um, 1918 Europe, you'll see Germany's absolutely huge. You'll see Russia is absolutely huge except there's no Poland, there's none of the Baltic states, there's no Ukraine, there's no nothing. So they there was this tremendous loss of face as well. And they decided basically, well, they weren't going to put down their arms. Now, the Red Menace came in as early as January 1919 with Rosa Luxemburg, who'd been deported from America, and Karl Karl uh, Liebknecht. Uh, they led the Spartacus uprising in January 1919, but by March 1920, the Baltic Russians, so these are the people who wanted to have the Tsar back on the throne, 
they were actually in charge of the first big uprising in Berlin, and that was called the Cap Putsch. And um, the the main guys who were there were included Alfred Rosenberg, uh, Max Amann, who was Hitler's publisher, uh, Dietrich Eckhart. Hitler wasn't there. Hitler was already down in Munich, but these guys were kicked out of Berlin. Um, a really important one who was also uh, hated the, the, the Reds was uh, Max Erwin Schugner Richter, who was from Riga. And they, all these guys really were basically uh, Baltic Russians who wanted to see the Tsar back on the throne. So they wanted to overthrow the Soviets. The Germans, who were affiliated with them, wanted to make sure that they could overthrow Weimar. Um, and so um, there was a real a coming together of minds, as it were. Um, and uh, it didn't work. Uh, it culminated with the Beer Hall Putsch in, in uh, 1923. A few people realized that um, when uh, Schubner uh, Richter was standing next to Hitler arm in arm as they were marching in Munich that day, and he's the one that got the bullet in the chest. So um, who knows what would have happened if, A, he hadn't been killed because he was the smart guy and he was helping to groom Hitler to use the right language. Um, he was one of many. But uh, basically, the people who were in power in Germany didn't want to see Weimar. They wanted to. Th- they wanted things back the way they were. It's fascinating, isn't it? I we always um you talk about aristocrats after the First World War, and you immediately think of the Russians scampering all over the place, don't you? I mean, especially Paris, quite a few in London. Uh, but you yeah. have got Germans doing that as well because they just think I'm better off out of here. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> who are the US aristocrats, and what's their relationship like with the rise of fascism? Well, American aristocrats, Alex, are, are obviously not aristocrats as we know them in Europe. Okay, yeah. um, they are business leaders, they are senators, congressmen. Uh, they are very involved in government and politics. They are big. Uh, they make huge donations, rather, to political parties and to all sorts of campaigns. Uh, so you've got people like Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. What a nice oh, man. Who was that? No, he's a dick, isn't he? Is he not like yeah. a massive anti-Semite and a horrible human being? I exactly. drive a Ford and I remember reading about this and thinking. <laughs> exactly. But you have Irene Dupont. Mm-hmm. who, you know, head of DuPont, that was the largest corporation in America, family-owned business. Um, they also owned most of General Motors at the time, which was a huge company. And uh, basically, they were able to get a lot of business leaders to think like them. And the main reason was they didn't like the idea that rugged individualism was coming to an end in America with the stock market crash. Yeah, And, and that was it. They also had very strong, Morgan Bank in particular, um, and JP Morgan had very strong links with Russian exiles. Okay. And with the imperial uh, government in Russia. So they decades, haven't they, of sort of unchecked, unbalanced license to make money, sort of going back to the 1880s and stuff. Yeah. They've just been scoped to become disgustingly rich. Like I'm thinking of like the Vanderbilts and the Aston. Yeah. But the Morgans, the, the, the Astors, the Astors were among them, but the ones who were really bad were the Morgans. Yeah. Vanderbilts, you know, they, they made their money on American railways. There were, there were a lot of Brits who piled into the American railways as well. Yeah. Um, and small 
investment banks that became wealthy as a result of the push west in the in the 1870s and 80s but um it was when america decided to go international that things got really hairy because of course <clears throat> america wasn't the big country in the world was it it was the british empire i mean, i've read i actually read somewhere recently that it amazed me that because of the american civil war and how that set america back that america's industrial capacity in 1914 is the same as belgium's oh wow that's about right. massive for railway production and locomotive production and stuff and yeah. i read it in a belgian history of the first world war that they have the same capacity industrially obviously the potential for america as we find out when they get involved in supplying the war and then declare war is massive but at the time that's where they were what and the other thing that was really bizarre is that there wasn't any chemistry industry in america Mm. at the time and where was where was the great chemistry industries uh they were in germany okay ig farben and which of course Believe it or not, started in London. Um, and, uh, then the, the French were also very good at chemistry, but IG Farben really, um, was the, the main mover when it came to chemistry. So you're talking colors, explosives, bare aspirin, even all of that was, was part of the major German push forward. And of course you had, um, Krupp and Thyssen as well. So these are huge armaments manufacturers. So, and uh, when I mentioned DuPont before, they owned Remington Arms. So, you know, they were the ones who were pushing forward with World War One. They really enjoyed the idea of understand that the German fascists are courting the German industrialists, and this comes through the bailout of Germany after the after the First World War. And uh, Morgan Bank were, were one of the key factors. Uh, they were the largest bank in the world at the time. They under they were the really the moving force behind bailing out Germany, okay? So um, they were the ones that were able to say, look, guys, there's this new way of thinking. And one of the people who picked up on that, believe it or not, was Joe Kennedy, father of, of the future president. And he was actually saying to Roosevelt at the time, you know, I, I, I think if you run on a ticket that, you know, you, you, you want the common man, that's all well and good that you want to, you know, you have your forgotten man. But really what we should be doing is creating a fascist government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Daddy Kennedy's another one that's not nice, isn't he? He is. And I already wrote about him another yeah. time. Let's not, we'll do another episode on why the why Daddy Kennedy was a dick as well. But yeah, oh, he, was, he was definitely <laughs> no, definitely. Um, and fortunately, I hate to say this about anybody, but fortunately, his oldest son was killed in in combat because if he became the first president, the first Kennedy president, I don't know what would have happened. That's Joe Junior, isn't it? Joe Junior, yeah, he was yeah. serious bad news. We should we'll do an episode on that. We promise. Uh, <laughs> but let's <laughs> let, let's recenter ourselves. What, what what was happening, which is really interesting, is instead of the world being, you know, the British Empire, America was starting to thrust itself onto the world stage, and it was start. And because Britain was basically um, bankrupt after World War One, the U.S. financiers said, "Okay, we're going to go in and we're going to do this and that and the other." And you had people like Montague Norman, who was the, pres- uh, the head of the bank, the governor of the Bank of England, who was saying, yeah, 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 fine. But you come in behind us, guys. And of course, they, they ran, you know, the tire tracks all over the guy's back. OK, so um, America understood that money talked. 
and they could really create a huge export market um, through finance to begin with, and of course, then American goods overseas. So that's that's the main connection. They didn't care if anybody was fascist. Didn't mean anything. And virtually everybody at the time was anti-Semite. So that worked well from their point of view. One of the people that comes up quite a lot, though, it was, um, and I really hope I don't get the Germanic uh, pronunciation wrong or I'll never hear the end of it, Princess Stephanie von Hohenlohe. Can you tell us a bit about her and what she was up to? Princess Stephanie von Hohenlohe of Waldenburg Schlingsfurst. Okay. <laughs> Did that help? <laughs> she was unique. I'm, I'm trying to think of words that aren't pejorative because... You know, there are very few people who are uh, and uh, in the 1890s or 18, late 1880s who were born um, into poverty. OK, her father uh, was in jail during her mother's entire pregnancy, including um, the the moment when she became pregnant. OK, um, her Stephanie's father was a Jewish moneylender called uh, Max uh, Weiner, and um, basically, she she had nothing. She was born into nothing. However, her uncle, who had run away from home age sixteen, believe it or not, to fight first against the British in the Boer War in South Africa, then for the British afterwards. Um, he became extremely wealthy as a diamond millionaire. He invested in the very first diamond mine in what became uh, Johannesburg, okay, and invested his money back into the UK. Now, this this was an incredible find because anybody else who's written about her has never found out where the money really came from. There were lots of theories or any, and everything. But um, fortunately, when I was still doing corporate finance, I worked in South Africa, and I knew about the Kuranda, Kuranda name from South Africa. And that's how I found the connection is in South Africa through the Heritage oh. Trust. So basically, she now is brought up with money from South African diamonds in um, Austria, which is no longer Austria, Hungary. People are they don't know where they are. The wealthy are impoverished. So if you have if you have millions at your disposal because you're effectively um, bankrolled by your uncle, Everybody wants to be a part of you. So that's how she got into society. So she's in society now. She's got the name Richter. She, she's never been in a synagogue in her life. She is 100% Jewish by um, uh, biologically, but she has never, ever practiced a Jewish religion or anything else. And normally that would have been more than enough for her to, under the Nazis, to have been killed. But she was a clever girl and she wanted to marry a prince. Um, she ended up getting pregnant by uh, one of the archdukes of um, Austria. And he arranged a uh, suitable marriage for her with Prince uh, Franz Friedrich von Hohenlohe. Okay. Where did they get married? London. Why did they get married in London? Oh, because... The Hohenlohe family wasn't about to accept the fact that his gambling debts from Russia, believe it or not, were going to be paid by the Archduke in order to marry this Jewish woman. So to, in, so that the marriage wouldn't get stopped, that's where they got married. 
she had the baby. Uh, it was a boy, named him Franz, supposedly after the father. Um, and basically, after three years, he left her for another woman. Uh, he actually uh, became the Nazi intelligence leader in Switzerland during the war. Okay, and uh, Scarpered immediately um, on May the eighth, uh, forty-five, down to South America, and never came back. So she's now independent. That's like a real winner, doesn't he? Just he, really, he, was, he was fantastic. But, you know, everybody said, oh, she was really good with money. No, she wasn't. She was really good at spending money. <laughs> okay. She was really good with other people's money. Okay. Um, and she also, because she traveled in the high circles, as early as 1925, she became an agent for Admiral Horthy who had the ridiculous title of um, the regent for uh, Hungary. Now, the Hungarian uh, emperor was also knocked off the throne at the end of the war, but there's a regent to a throne that doesn't exist anymore, okay? Mm -hmm. So he says to her, I want you to go to France and do some spying for me. He's already a friend of Hitler's, okay? And so she goes to France to do some spying. She gets caught, um, and... Basically, a friend of hers, an American friend of hers called Donald Malcolm, a financier, no less, gets her out, gets her out of France and brings her to London. And they decide together to go after Rothermere, Lord Rothermere, owner of the Daily Mail and, and his big newspaper empire, which was much bigger than that it is now. And essentially... um she rises like cream to the top. She's being paid an equivalent of about 200,000 pounds a year, uh, to not write articles, but she, she introduced, introduces Rothermere not only to all of the Hungarian and Austrian royalty, but also to Hitler. And she becomes Hitler's, I suppose you'd call her a salon spy in London. Um, does a fantastic job until, 19, end of 1938, uh, when she decides she's going to sue Rothermere because he he um, he decides that he does he can't take it anymore. She was so extravagant with money that you know he, he not only paid her two hundred thousand a year, but he paid other expenses and and all sorts of things. So um, he basically fires her. She sues him, and that ended up being her downfall. Long story. Got to read the book to understand it, but. Essentially, she goes off to America with her lover, who was um, Hitler's adjutant uh, and also his former boss in America. In uh, sorry, during the First World War, Captain Fritz Wiedemann, who's now made consul general in um, San Francisco, and uh, he's basically in charge of the German-Japanese spying operation in America. And she is wandering around New York aristocracy, trying to get in with NBC and CBS and all of these other people, um, but basically can't for some reason, which I will explain at another time. But basically, she comes a cropper. So does he. Not because they they um, were particularly importantly active in America, but because she was indiscreet. She just didn't know how to be discreet. There was another lady very similar to her called uh, Edith uh, von Kohler, who did the same sort of thing, except she was gorgeous. Uh, I don't think Stephanie was particularly pretty, but everybody said she was. Um, and this lady, Edith von Kohler in Romania, was incredibly discreet, 
and she lived until after the war. She, you know, she was released by the Americans and um, she was fine. Stephanie, on the other hand, ends up in jail uh, in 1941 and um, is released afterwards, but only because she has suborned the head of immigration to America. It goes off and lives with him for three years. He dies and she she gets resurrected by Der Springer, uh, Alex Springer um, and um, his magazine Empire and sets up the interviews with the candidate, with President Kennedy and with President Johnson and all sorts of things. How did she do it? You know, amazing. I mean, like part of me just thinks, good on you, girl. And also as well, I just can't feel sorry for Robert Mira. Just, this... and, and, I mean, she lived to a ripe old age. But one of the things that I left out is one of the reasons why I think Hitler got angry at her and um, Wiedemann. I don't think he was really angry with him. It was a pretend angry uh, is they were helping Jews helping inverted commas. OK, Um Jews to get their money and uh, objet d'art out of uh, Germany and or other places. Uh, and um, there's her home office file is takes a lot of, to get a hold of. And when you, what you do do when you get a hold of it is you get, well, this thing's been heavily culled. You know, but you get the sense that the only reason why she wants to come back into Britain, we don't let her back in until 1967. Wow. <laughs> she only wants to get back into Britain to get into her Coots safe deposit box. <laughs> of course she does. <laughs> and what's in there? <laughs> oh, well, knowing how much you have to... I have to have to open an account with Coots. I'm not surprised she wanted the contents of it. Exactly. Uh, let's talk, so we've already, we've kind of sidled on to British aristocrats and through that, but let's talk about that. Uh, <laughs> oh. Oh, I'm currently writing a book about the Duke of Windsor. So Are you? Yeah, let's just, uh, that's the elephant in the room uh, and we will very soon, I can't tell you what's in it because it's embargoed, but Alex Larman is going to be on on the 10th of March about his new book, The Windsor's at War, and I have it and I'm reading it and oh my God, is the Duke of Windsor going to get a kicking? So we'll leave him. Oh, Um, shut. You can can give him a kick if you like, because I'm always up for that. Um, But British aristocracy and the political situation in Europe. Where do they find their sympathies going? Because as we've just revealed, some of them, it's very distasteful where we see their sympathies going. And yes. the very highest of aristocracy. Exactly. I mean, Churchill's problem is is he was related by marriage to people like the Mitfords and to Lord Londonderry, who was, for some unknown reason, the head of the uh, Air Force uh, in, in the government. I mean, please. Blame Lloyd George for the whole thing. Well, yes, that's good, because Lloyd George tips up in, in, in the next book I want to do quite a lot as well. So. Excellent. Yeah. I, I love this. We've, we've done the Kennedys, we've done Lloyd George, we've done the Duke of Windsor. Who else do we hate, Chris? Yeah, well, Duke <laughs> I, you know, I do, there's only one person I, I would like to feel sorry for in, in, in all of that. Uh, that's the Duke of Windsor, but I don't feel sorry for him because he was an idiot. Um, he probably didn't have much of a brain. Um, I, all I will say is that as much as I laugh and joke about it, is that never before have I researched someone where I found it so difficult to be inside their head and where I found it so difficult to find any kind of redeeming quality that would 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 help you to 
think like them and understand them. He's he's exactly. I mean, when I read uh, it, because you know all about the uh, German archives that were buried um, in the East and then unearthed after the Second World War, and if it wasn't for uh, John Wheeler Bennett, who was getting those translated into English at the time and standing up to Churchill, amongst others. Uh, we would have never known that uh, Duke of Windsor basically said, I want you to continue bombing London. It is the only way that they will sue for peace. He was the epitome of entitlement. Anyway, I'm not allowed to talk about him, am I? So we're going to move <laughs> on. <laughs> Let's talk about some other people because he gets a lot of coverage, but he is by no means is he an isolated figure sympathising oh, no. or no. being involved with What what I'd like to say is that there were, in the aristocracy, it was basically split down the middle, okay? There were those who felt there was a great deal of democracy fatigue. I mean, if you look at at who was prime minister from 1920 to 1936, you'll see Baldwin, McDonald, Baldwin, McDonald, and everybody goes, oh, well, well, we all know it's going to just switch between them. And there wasn't much difference between the Labour Party and, and the Tories at the time. And people stopped believing in democracy. So what are the alternatives? Oh, well, you can go communist and be part of that whole thing, or you can go fascist. Oh, the fascists are more our people, a lot of them said. So, um, but you know, there, there are people who, who didn't get, don't get mentioned generally, like, um, before Wallace came along, Thelma Furness, who was actually American, Lady Furness, uh, was deeply anti-Semitic. She um, she basically uh, said and did some pretty horrible things. Wallace, I don't think, was as bad as some of the others. But um, you've got, I think the worst one was Londonderry. And Edith Londonderry, who, who really got him in his job by whining and dining McDonald, okay? Um, she, she essentially went with him and their daughter, who was married to, um, Stanley, Oliver Stanley. Um, they went to Germany on a fact finding trip and came back. Oh, fantastic, wonderful. If you read Chips Channon, I mean, the guy was enamored. They all loved the pomp and ceremony of the Nazis. 1936 was this fantastic turning point. Hitler had two Olympic events, winter and summer events. He was going to turn on the charm. He brought in Ribbentrop to London as his ambassador against Ribbentrop's will. And and basically, you have people like Emerald Cunard, also a born American living in London, who, who says, oh, I'm in love with Ribbentrop's dimple. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, you know. These are people who who don't seem to have any grounding in, in the dangers. What they see is the communists want to get rid of private property. Oh, I'm wealthy. I don't want to get rid of private property. Look what happened to all of the wealthy aristocrats in Europe. Oh, when they got rid of the monarchy. Oh, that's the danger to us. And that was the underlying thing that was driving them towards fascism. Um, they were all, all of them were quite enamored with the idea of a dictator. So you have uh, Nancy and Waldorf Astor going off to um, see Stalin in the early 30s, okay? Um, And Stalin demanded a private audience. Why? Because he wanted to know 
if Churchill was going to come back into government. Now, hello, you should have told that to somebody who could have said, get the guy back into government quickly. But no, he was still in the wilderness, obviously, until 1939 when war is declared. Um, who else is worried about Churchill? Oh, Hitler. Did they do anything about it? No. 1936, you have the proxy war in Spain, which, you know, Hitler is is prosecuting. The Russians were not there as much as the, the Nazis said they were. OK, um, they just they tested out uh, on Guernica and said, oh, we need to steal a bomb site. You know, we need to figure out what to do because our bombing was pretty, pretty bad in Guernica. We only destroyed half the town, but we didn't destroy our target, which was the bridge. So then they send their aristocratic spy to America and they end up getting the bomb site as early as 1937, the one that they want, which is the Norden bomb site. But the, the British aristocracy is just totally immune, ignorant of what is going on in Nazi Germany, despite the reports, despite everything that's going on. And, you know, Londonderry was finally sacked because uh, he was inept. Um, but if it hadn't have been for people like Churchill, obviously, um, Alfred Duff Cooper and Diana Cooper, they were also anti. Um, you had, um, I'm just trying to remember all of them. Churchill didn't shut up, did he? He was relentless with the anti Absolutely relentless. Hired his own team of people at his own expense. Thank goodness Rothermere gave him a job um, uh, on the newspaper because if he hadn't, you know, I mean, Rothermere, even though he was supporting Hitler and everything else, it was because he believed the big lie. Now, what's the big lie? Oh, that Hitler's going to restore, restore the monarchies and give the aristocracy back everything they've lost. Well, he's got Hitler's got this constant back and forth with the Kaiser, hasn't he? And it it's kind of <laughs> half the time he's suggesting that, yeah, stick with me and I'll get you back on your throne. And the other half, he couldn't be further away from him. So exactly. he's... And, and he had Prince Awi. Talk about stupid people. Uh, Awi was the fourth son. Um, August Wilhelm was his real name. But, I mean, yeah, he was just enthralled. You had <clears throat> uh, his real name was uh, Charles Edward, uh, the Duke of uh, Saxe, Coburg and Gotha, who started life as the son of the Duke of Albany, who is the youngest son of Queen Victoria, yeah. He's, he's poor, poor Schmuck just realizes he's on the wrong side in yeah. well, He's 15. He's taken out of Eton, where he made loads of friends, shipped off to Germany, fights in the in the war uh, in, on the German side, and is humiliated afterwards. So he's out for revenge against the British. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's just it, it, if you weren't in basically in uh Churchill's camp. You were for Hitler. Nobody seemed to believe what was going on. It was insane. Absolutely insane. But Duff Cooper was was fantastic. And there were a number of financiers who were also absolutely wonderful at the time. British financiers who ignored the Bank of England, etc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So were there, were there many moves? We kind of mentioned it briefly, but were there any real, real moves to bring back the uh, German imperial monarchy? I know you're asking this because you're obsessed with the Kaiser's daughter, uh, but it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it, it was it was all on paper, okay. Uh, when I say on paper, it was on paper in Hitler's mind. So he had people like um, Stephanie going to see the Kaiser as well, saying, you know, oh, you know, I promise you, uh, the, the royal families of Europe will come back. Um, she brought Rothermere in, you know, Rothermere thought that he was going to become king of Hungary at one point, you know, but then uh, as well, he's brought in to talk to um, not the Kaiser, but his, the Kaiser's heir. And, you know, it's all, it, it's all smoke and mirrors, the whole thing. Um, and that was really uh, how Hitler was able to get the aristocrats on side. They thought that they were going to get everything back. And, you know, you can understand it in in a certain way. If you have everything taken away from you and you're told you're going to get it back without even trying, then, okay, sounds fine. Who cares if everybody's getting beaten up? Who cares if there's no such thing as um, civil rights any longer? You know, that sort of thing. And that's what they were, that's what they were saying. I mean, I can understand the, the general mindset when it comes to the various individuals and what they were seeing. I mean, Charles Lindbergh is the worst as far as I'm concerned, because he spent enough time in Germany to know better. Okay. Um, all of the aristocrats who went to the Olympics um, and, and saw nothing, well, they were meant to see nothing. Okay. Um, the head of, actually the head of the International Olympic community at the time was uh, an American called Avery Brundage. And he knew what was going on, but he lied to Congress and he lied to the Senate and he lied to the American people. So, there we go. When I was growing up, our neighbour was this old chap, and he was on the British hockey team in 1936. Oh, he was wow. a hit the snuff Jesse Owens, and he was there for the like opening closing ceremonies and stuff like that. And I just remember him saying, "I was like, I was just a hockey player, nothing to do with any of the politics or the planning." Or that. but he said it was just there was an underlying grimness. The whole thing felt grubby. Yeah. And that's a nobody with a hockey stick. So to think that any politician didn't have any idea and that it was all exactly. a surprise. Exactly. Mm. I mean, you know, you've, you've got, you have the, the, the mad, bad and dangerous to know gang like uh, Unity Midford. Okay. Who was totally bonkers. Um, and she was the one who got, um, Pritzi Hafstengel, who is both American and German, uh, kicked out of Germany. Um, you know, she, she was trying desperately to get Hitler to hate Princess Stephanie. This, why? Because she wanted to marry Hitler and, and, and be better than her sister. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> but actually, she, but she was mad. She was yeah. really <laughs> clearly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know many sane people that go, yeah, I want to marry Hitler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we she, thought Chris she, was she, a weirdo with Princess Victoria Louise. <laughs> but she was, she was, she's actually buried with Diana about 10 miles away from where I live. So, um, I, I decided not to buy a house many years ago in that village for the reasons that the Midfords live there. I know that's <laughs> dumb, but you know. <laughs> oh, you're, you're with fellow nerds. It makes perfect sense. Uh, Von Ribbentrop is a major figure within the Nazi regime. Uh, what is his role in gauging British support and how successful was he at it? Right. Well, he thought he had, he, he told Hitler that he had the finger on the pulse. He understood the Brits. After all, there's no difference between the British and the Canadians and the Americans. He'd lived a lot of years in Canada. Actually, he was on the Stanley Cup ice hockey team for Canada as a youngster. Okay, so he spent a lot of time in in America. Um, When the First World War was declared, he went back to fight, you know, all of this. But he was the only person who had English as a foreign language who surrounded Hitler he did have a better understanding of things. He always wanted to be an English gentleman. Um, uh, but by the time he came to England as the ambassador, he felt as though he couldn't trust Hitler around other people. So anything that happened that got him upset, he would write these long raging letters back to Hitler saying, um, you know, this, this, that and the other people are so unfair. It's, pe- people are mean to me. Um, how dare they call me, uh, ambassador brick and, brick and drop? Um, you know, how dare they, how dare they make fun of the fact that I fell backwards and gave the full, uh, Sieg Heil, uh, to the king? I mean, really? Um, he, he unfortunately delayed his arrival until after Edward VIII became uh, a liability, really. Um, and then, uh, he was constantly upset about this plot of the British aristocracy. And this is where he, he got things so wrong. He blamed the whole of the aristocracy for not accepting Wallace Simpson. And <laughs> or exactly. it could possibly be Wallace Simpson's own personality. Well, obviously, in a lot of ingrained snobbery and the fact that she's a divorcee and all of that, but she wasn't very nice. No, she wasn't. And he liked he liked people who were mean to him. Okay. Yeah. The, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we can yeah. go down that road. Yeah. Masochism fits in, in that picture somehow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Just a tad. Um, so basically, uh, he, he believed, firmly believed that he had his finger on the pulse. And what he really, really hated was that Hitler didn't believe him. Why? Because Stephanie was telling him a different story. Stephanie would say, oh, I've got them in the palm of my hand. He actually gave her Max Reinhardt's fabulous chateau um, near Salzburg because she'd done so well with the British aristocracy. And she had been playing golf with the Prince of Wales, who then became king and all of this stuff. You know, so she was in and Ribbentrop was out and Ribbentrop really, really wanted to get her. Um, But he couldn't. When he got back and he became the uh, foreign minister at that point, that's when Stephanie didn't realize she was very vulnerable. Um, but he did not have his finger on the pulse with, with the British at all. And he should have done. He even had Rothermere on his side. Now, it, it may seem weird that Rothermere uh, backed 
Roosevelt, uh, not Roosevelt, okay, Churchill, and that he also backed Ribbentrop. But Rothermir was a monarchist, and he still believed in 1938 that Hitler was going to put the monarchy back on the throne. I mean, there's one thing you can say about Hitler. Bullshit was one of his skill set. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, and, And he was good at it. And he was really good at keeping the message simple. Unfortunately, he's not very good at gauging minions because Ribbentrop was just, he was just so socially awkward. Yes. And he just, he thought he understood the British, but he grew to have, because our sense of humor was just a, con- I think they called him von Ribbensnob as well at one point. Yes. And he was just, he just, he didn't get the sense of humor. So he always thought they're having a go at him. I mean, they were, but it, it yes. started lighthearted. And then when he took it personally, it became sort of, oh, these bloody English, they don't, are uh, and, and then that apparently that's what got him. He he told Hitler in 1939, if we invade Poland, the British won't do anything. I understand the British; they won't do. Oh, crud! <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we didn't we? Um, Churchill won't shut up with the anti-fascist rhetoric. Chris, suggest why this might be necessary. Well, yeah, it's um, Oswald Mosley and the BUF are becoming quite powerful. Um, they've got quite a following. Um, but did they get much support from Germany and Italy? They got a lot of financial support from Italy in the beginning, not from Germany. Um, I think that you could say that the BUF in Mosley um, switched from Italy to Germany when he switched allegiances after his first wife's death between his two um, mistresses, uh, Baba Metcalf and uh, Lady Alexandra Metcalf and um, Diana Guinness, as she was then Diana Midford. Um, And what happened was he was, he was again, 200,000 a year. That seemed to be the magical number at the time for some reason. And he got 200,000 a year from Mussolini from about 1932 onwards. Don't forget, Mussolini's almost in power 10 years by then. And everybody's also holding up Mussolini as the wonderful example of how to get rid of communism, which to a certain extent was true, because even Churchill said in 1929 he'd done a good job. Okay, um, but I say to a certain extent was true. You know, they, they they forgot about things like his invading Corfu and his um, killing his uh, opponents, or rather murdering his opponents. So you know, it, there comes this qualified acceptance of fascism at the time. But Mussolini was getting really, really hacked off with Mosley because he was harping on about about anti-Semitic and Jews and all these anti-Semitic remarks and Jews and all these things. And he wasn't actually coming up with the British version of the Italian model of fascism. And so uh, as he and Diana became closer and closer, she obviously had very good connections with Hitler and uh basically uh hitler took over the purse that um mussolini had been giving to him and so it ended up in things like the battle of cable street uh where they actually go into the east end and pick a fight with the jewish population who lived there so um actually at the time war was declared hitler had actually had been paying for a um a radio station for him to start announcing his stuff in in England, uh, but it was only half built by the time war was declared. So, um, and of course, he and his wife ended up um, 
uh, under Section 18B in jail, so for a good part of the war, not the whole war. So, uh, yeah, they had a very strong relationship. But um, funnily enough, it was uh, Mussolini's son-in-law who kept saying, they're not giving you any information. Mrs. Guinness, as he called Guinness, um, Mrs. Guinness isn't giving you any information. There's no, no, we don't know what's going on. (laughs) They wanted to have real intelligence. And at this point, they started employing Italian spies in London who, like the German attaché, sorry, like the Italian attaché at the Italian embassy. Okay, who happened to coerce with not much difficulty because he was a double agent, a guy, a a cipher clerk at the American embassy. And so the Italians were getting information from reliable sources, uh, including the uh, secret um, uh, traffic between uh, now Churchill, who is uh, back at the Admiralty, and Franklin Roosevelt. So all of these, they decided that Mosley was a spent force. He really wasn't doing anything. But he never, Mosley never said that he wanted to overthrow the British government. In terms of, I mean, so they are getting information, but in terms of, so I, I just keep coming back to how vocal Churchill was about the danger of fascism and how big and scary it was. To what extent have they got supporters and sympathisers getting out information to them? Is it on a large scale? It, it was actually quite huge. Um, Vernon Kell, uh, who was the head of MI5 at the time, um, really couldn't, couldn't pinpoint it. And a lot of times it was basically independent drop boxes. They weren't necessarily aristocrats, but when it came to the aristocrats, they didn't realize that when they were invited into Germany and they were being wined and dined, that any little tidbit of information they were giving was very important. So when Goering was acting like, uh, you know, a jolly fellow with um, Chips Channon, for example, Channon was in seventh heaven. He would he would have given him his mother, his father and, and, and children and wife, not because he loved them, but basically because he was just thrilled that, that, that uh, Goering was talking to him. So they didn't. It was a lot of um, what I would call salon spying going on. Um, but they did get the embassies involved more. But there were a lot of uh, German aristocrats. Swedish aristocrats were also involved. There were so many aristocrats who were either intermarried or had known each other from the international watering holes. Um, and, and if it hadn't been for Churchill, I just don't know what would have happened. I, I say Churchill, but also Duff Cooper was really important in that, even though he remained friendly with Edward. Were the aristocrats reporting through the Abwehr or were they going through a, a different different way of getting the information back? Uh, it was a different way of getting information back because at the same time that um, they were giving information, uh, Canaris was very unhappy uh, mm. with what was going on with the Abwehr. So by the time war was declared, he was trying to get information to um, the British as well. There were, uh, on both sides, there were a number of what I would call good people who were trying to avoid war. Okay. Um, there uh, were, uh, there was a deputation of um, German aristocrats and military leaders, for example, who sent one man who was a farmer aristocrat to London um, to say, look, before there is war, we have enough of the military behind us to overthrow Hitler, but we need to have your support. And Halifax and Chamberlain refused to give it because they didn't believe them. 
Mm. Yeah, that was that was basically the black orchestra. So there were there were good people on both sides. I'm using good because that's my interpretation of good. Um, and uh, I, I think that Ribbentrop obviously uh, had too much of an ego <clears throat> on the one hand, and on another hand, he was constantly feeding misinformation and and paranoia to Hitler. So there was this false image of um, the soft British arist- uh, aristocracy that wasn't going to do anything um, mm. that uh, was obviously quite harmful. It's sad. Ribbentrop as well, he was, I remember my Schellenberg, he tried to set up his own intelligence organization through the Foreign Office later on. And so you ended up with like Schellenberg with the SSSD intelligence, Canaris with the Abwehr, and then Ribbentrop trying to get his, and everyone's trying to get a piece of the pie. Yes, so I was just... it, went, it went from the Ribbentrop Bureau to the Ribbentrop uh, Dean something or another. I can't remember what it was now. Yeah. So. Um, but yes, Ribbentrop, um, if he saw a good thing, he tried to get in on it. Okay. Um, and I think it was Goering who said that basically, um, you know, Ribbentrop, doesn't have his own ideas. He listens to everything that Hitler says for hours on end, and he'll retain one thing that's a that's a jewel, right? Mm-hmm. And then he'll repeat it to Hitler, and Hitler thinks, "Oh, Ribbentrop, what a wonderful idea you've had." <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he was. Um, <clears throat> but you know, stupid people can be dangerous. Yes. <laughs> so. Second World War starts in 1939, but you've got the America First group aims to keep America out of the war. Was there really a, a big split? Because you see all the imagery of like the American Nazi League marching. And it's, if you look at the photos, you can't tell if the Germans are obviously it looks very Germanic. Was there was there really that much of a split that would have kept the US out of the war if Pearl Harbor hadn't happened? I would like to say no, but that would be wrong. There was a tremendous split. Uh, Philip Roth wrote an incredible novel called The Plot Against America, which basically has Lindbergh as president in 1940. That was the fear. That, and, and, you know, this is a man who grew up as, as a Jew in America at the time. Um, the book that I want to write next, I don't know if it's going to happen or not yet, because my American publisher wants to see how this book goes. But it, it's all about a man who was sent by Churchill to America to get America into the war before it got into the war. And essentially, you know, it's the other side of this, this whole thing about the aristocrats being bad. Well, this is a good aristocrat. Okay. Uh, and what he does and what his wife does to try and get America into the war and how they end up going head to head with um, uh, Lindbergh and Lindbergh. Don't forget. He is the only international hero. I mean, real hero. He's not a movie star or anything else, even though he's good looking. Um, he created a heart valve. He he actually was multi-talented, but seriously, seriously sick in the head. Okay, I mean, really seriously sick in the head. I don't know if you know that after the war, uh, it was discovered that um, he had married two German women and had children by them. He was still married to Anne Maura Lindbergh, but he had these other children to see if they would be superior beings to his children by Anne. Wow. Okay. And um, my first editor, um, when I started writing, um, he's the son of the man that gave provided uh, religious solace to Anne. Basically, he was he was her 
confessor, I suppose, although he, he wasn't Catholic and neither was she. So, um, but yeah, it's the guy had tremendous talent. A lot of our international uh, travel routes were mapped by Anne and Charles Lindbergh. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was a serious anti-Semite. He was very, very dangerous. Um, I don't know if he was pro Ku Klux Klan or not, but don't forget you had the Klan as well. And they had expanded out from the South. You had German spies everywhere in America, um, thanks to IG Farben. Um, And that's actually what got um, Wiedemann and all of the German councils um, thrown out of America in 1941, uh, June 41. Okay, so that's before they entered the war. Roosevelt and his entire cabinet were on side to get America into the war. Um, the biggest problem is that there was this huge vacuum which said, uh, no. Um, I know for a fact that uh, Hitler was paying a number of senators and congressmen to keep America neutral. The Soviet Union was also paying them. Some of them were paid by both <laughs> at the wow. same time. <laughs> um, you know, so there are the system was corrupt. Um, and frankly, if it hadn't have been for Roosevelt, uh, I, I don't know what would have happened. But there is a strong component in America that believes we are self-sufficient. And um, the current president's State of the Union message last night um, was also saying that we're going to be building things in America again. Everything's going to be buy American, build American. That's it. And that's something I remember from my childhood growing up. So I I think that the answer is it it was a big split. But the Klan, believe it or not, they were active in places like California and Hollywood. Wow. Okay. Um, In Florida, they were putting out, you know, Miami, they were putting out information that uh, if you were were Catholic, um, that, uh, sorry, if, sorry, if you were a Catholic, you um, were not going to have your marriage recognized by the state, okay, when the Klan came in, okay? There were all kinds of things uh, everywhere. Um, we won't even get into the race issue because that's just that's still going on. Um, but uh, America is a an incredibly divided country today. Um, five years ago, when I first mentioned I wanted to do this book to my editor in America, I said, we're back in the 1930s. He didn't believe me. And I, I said, hey, Russia's on the march again. You know, there's, there's this power vacuum within the European Union. Actually, it may have been six years ago because it was before the vote on, on Brexit. So, you know, the whole thing, first he didn't believe me. Now he believes me. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's also one of those what if questions. Um, would America have come into the war? Uh, impossible to know the answer. I would like to think yes, but I know probably it may have been too little too late. Might come down to the unrestricted Europe question again. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, the really interesting thing is, the moment war was declared, everybody who'd been pro-Hitler jumped ship. Everybody. Yeah. 
Sussex. Did, did London Derry? No, well, sorry, that's not that's wrong. It wasn't everybody. The Duke of Buccleuch, who was the Lord Steward, did not, um, and he lost his job for. It. Yeah, there were there were a few hangers on. Susan, thanks for coming in to help us to unravel the web that really overly complicated social political web that is the aristocracy and uh, the rise of uh, Nazism in Europe. Would you mind uh, reminding everyone what the the title of your book is? Uh, Yes, Uh, the title of the book is Hitler's Aristocrats, Secret Power Players in Britain and America Who Supported the Nazis, 1923 to 1941. It's been brilliant. Thank you. So many rabbit holes that we kind of half went down and then stopped ourselves going down. But you need to come back to talk about Daddy Kennedy. We haven't been able to get into the Duke of Windsor thing because of the embargo on another interview we're doing. I would absolutely let you run riot on Daddy Kennedy. I promise you can say whatever you want. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.